0: Hey, Rational
1: Security listeners, Ben Wittes here, reminding you that the ads you hear on this show are not an inevitability. If you don't like them and you want them to go away, you can get an ad-free version of this podcast by supporting Lawfare's Patreon at patreon.com lawfare. Patreon supporters also get the Lawfare podcast ad-free ad free and they get access to our special weekly Lawfare Live events. So sign up today at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. So guys, the beast of the day today is the cicadas that shut down the president's press plane. What? Yeah.
2: I'm trying to figure out... Why all the cicadas decided to fly into the engines of the press plane going with the president to Europe?
3: Clearly it's a conspiracy. They're
2: not
1: that
3: deliberative. They're... Or smart.
1: Were were these
2: cicadas hit by a microwave weapon? Have these cicadas (laughs) been watching Fox News and believe that the press is the enemy of the people?
1: No. Yes and yes. These (laughs) cicadas are engaged in a three-week-long Bacchanalian orgy. Okay, would you and, have sex in that and, um,
3: not. That's not happening on a press <laughs> plate I'll tell the, you that much.
1: <laughs> is not important to the cicadas. They're just—they've been 17 years underground. They have come out. They're gonna—they've only got three weeks, and they're gonna have sex wherever. And, and scream and yell wherever they can, and if it inconveniences the press, who I want to add got pizza out of the deal. Um, so, like, you can keep a oh, lot of pre- oh, press pizza. You can get keep a lot of press people happy if you give them pizza.
2: What about free it's booze? True.
3: Well, that's incredible.
1: you know the the cicadas. It's their year, man. We just got to defer to
3: them. It's a hot cicada summer, you guys. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the I'm not saying it's aliens edition. It might be cicadas. It, yeah, they sound like it sounds like I can hear their soundtrack. It's like Plan 9 from outer space in the background at your house.
1: Yeah, well, we got you know, not a lot of cicadas here. And oh if you
2: God. can see them on radar, which apparently you can, then they could be <laughs> an unidentified
3: flying object. Yeah. We found, we actually saw, have been seeing in the past couple of days some of our first cicadas in Bloomingdale. We don't have a ton. And I should say, we don't so much see them flying around <clears throat> as we see um, their carcasses strewn on the sidewalk, their wings like clipped, where it seems like a bird is just, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, ripped them right off and Art sucked up the rest a of them.
2: little avian feasting.
3: Yeah, I saw one bird with one and he was running away from me like I was going to take it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw. Uh, I took a picture and tweeted it the other day that was like, you know, the opening scene from Terminator where the cyborg tank rolls over the human skull. Yes, yes. Uh, it was like that, only cicadas.
3: Was that the picture you showed of, like that hellscape by the yeah. tree? That yeah. was
1: insane. It was just like the ground cover. Was I to
2: was say just, to yeah, stones.
3: like Game of Thrones didn't have that level of just like carcass. <laughs> It was amazing. The red Wedding Cicadas. Oh, God. I mean, I really, that was, Was that at your house?
1: No, it was at the park
3: near our house. Okay. Okay. That was, whew. That was intense. Wow. All right. We're definitely, in, well, we might be talking about cicadas some more. Who knows? We have a lot going on this week. I'm here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Woodis and Tomorrow Coffin Woodis. Hi, guys.
2: Hi, Shane. Yo.
3: This week on the podcast, BB Netanyahu may be out of a job. He can go catch cicadas. I wonder if they have cicadas in Israel. They probably don't have the same problem right now. No. They do not. They, they have locusts. Yeah, in they the go region. for the difficult <laughs> They have much bigger problems. There
1: was a big locust swarm in Yemen recently. Yes,
3: there's been a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, alleged drug lords and contract killers thought they were using a secure messaging app, but whoops, they were talking to the cops. And there's no evidence it's aliens, but the USG doesn't know WTF is flying around in our. Airspace, a lot of listener interest in this one, I
2: can assure. You. Yeah, otherwise known as the Shane vindication. You
3: guys have no idea. I'm just so much tweeting. People like writing me, like you are talking about it this week, right? I'm like, come on, what do you take me for? Oh my gosh! But let us actually start with uh, the pressing uh, political developments. We talked on the podcast last week. In fact, I think we were recording uh, as we were kind of going up to a bre- breaking news moment last week around the issue of the. Uh, new Israeli government. Uh, But the latest on this, uh, reading from Patrick Kingsley's byline out of Jerusalem in the New York Times, the immediate political future of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel is set to be decided on Sunday after the Speaker of Israel's Parliament said that lawmakers would hold a vote of confidence in a new coalition government that afternoon. So that is where we are now on the precipice of this uh, historic event. Bibi Netanyahu has been in power in Israel 12 years as prime minister. That's a record, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that's the record. Tammy, always risky to predict the future, but just to start us off, so how likely is it that this fragile coalition that has formed will hold together and Naftali Bennett Will become the new prime minister this weekend?
2: I think it is fairly likely at this point that the coalition will win its confidence vote in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament on Sunday, and that Bennett will then become prime minister. How long the government will last, I'm not so sure. It is a very fractious coalition of eight parties. There are actually more parties in the governing coalition than outside the governing coalition. Ideologically, and on a lot of specific policy issues, they range across an incredibly wide spectrum, including most famously, I guess, or most discussed, the Islamist party headed by Mansour Abbas, the Ram party. But in addition to that, you have the progressive left- anchor of the Zionist camp, if you will, the Meretz party, which also has Arab members of Knesset. You have the Labour Party. You have Yair Lapid's uh, centrist party, which is actually the biggest party in this coalition. And Yair Lapid is the man who kind of knit this thing together. And then you have a couple of parties on uh, on the right, on the nationalist right, along with secular nationalists like Avigdor Lieberman. So, you know, these guys don't agree on much. They definitely agree on the need to get rid of Netanyahu as prime minister and get the Likud out of its ruling party poll position. And they seem to agree on the priority of basic governance after two years of political crisis with four inconclusive rounds of elections, a year of COVID that although Israel's Uh, immunization process went very well, the country also suffered greatly in the pandemic. And, you know, most recently after a wave of violence, including Arab Jewish violence inside Israel, it's just been a lot of crisis and a lot of uncertainty. And so they are banking on the idea that Israelis just want a government that works and that is focused on doing what citizens need from government, basic services, passing a budget, funding the schools, you know, providing health care, stuff like that. And that may be indeed the thing that will give them longevity if they can stay focused on delivering for voters and not get hung up on the ideological battles. And of course, the flip side of that is that Netanyahu and the Likud will want to get them hung up on ideological battles, and will probably be trying to use their status in the parliamentary opposition to um, set up as many traps as possible.
3: Ben, what do you think is the likelihood of that? I mean, is it? I mean, or is this? I mean, it seems like this is just being set up to continue being fractious, and and a coalition that is this fragile probably can't avoid that. And we'll we'll talk in a minute about what it means for U.S. Israeli relations, but you know, with with Tammy kind of teeing that up, I mean, how much is this likely to just devolve into chaos as soon as the new government is formed?
1: Well, so assuming the new government can be formed, and that means having no defections in the confidence vote. Netanyahu is working very hard to try to induce at least one defection. You need 61 votes to install the government. But once the government is installed, you need 61 votes to remove it, to, you need to pass a no confidence measure. You never have to pass a confidence measure again. You merely have to not fall to a no confidence measure. So I actually think the prospects for this government being stabler than people imagine are pretty good. And this is a radical hot take, but I I actually think this government may last longer than people expect. And the reason is that there's basically three groups of people, two, two flanks that could bring down this government or that have reason to want to, in the relative short term, bring down this government. One is the uh, right-wing nationalists in the government, the the New Hope Party of, of Gidon Saar, and the uh, Yamina Party of Naftali Bennett. And I don't think they have actually a particular incentive to do it. Naftali Bennett, because he's going to be prime minister, and you don't bring down your own government without a very good reason. And both of them because they have basically stabbed in the back a lot of right-wing Israeli voters who don't want a government in coalition with the left, let alone a government in coalition with Arab parties or parties made up of Palestinian Israelis. And so by forming this government, they are endangering themselves electorally. And so if they bring down the government and it goes to new elections, they could be absolutely wiped out. The chance that they have for electoral success, it seems to me, is if this government is at some level successful. Similarly, the Ra'am party of Mansour Abbas has taken a a truly radical step in the history of Israeli politics. Nothing else like it has ever happened. This is an Arab party that is entering the Israeli government. And if you, as that party, then collapse the government quickly, your experiment has not succeeded. The demonstration of success is if you can deliver things for your constituency that you can say, hey, this was because I took this courageous move of entering the government. And so I think the government is largely made up of a a solid center-left block that has has no interest at all in the government not succeeding. And then a right-wing and Arab block that are both locked in this leap of faith with their having joined the government, they've got to deliver results or they're really in a bad electoral situation. And I think that might create a certain stability that is not being anticipated right now.
3: All okay, right. So let's talk about then, presuming that there is a new government and there's a new prime minister, what are the immediate implications for U.S.-Israeli relations from that? Are we kind of still in a steady state, or is there some kind of reset or even just recalibration that we should be thinking about now that there'll be new leadership in Israel?
2: So, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if one reason why the Biden administration, you know, was sort of uh, backburnering Israeli-Palestinian issues in its first few months was not only that it had other priorities, but also that Israel was, you know, going through this fourth election in two years and they didn't really know what kind of government they would be dealing with on the other side. Some things are going to be the same. The defense minister in the current government, in Netanyahu's government, Benny Gantz, is going to be the defense minister in the new government. And that will actually smooth the path on conversations like, you know, the conversations between the Israeli government and the American government over the Iran nuclear negotiations or over, you know, Syria and Hezbollah in Lebanon and things like that. But I think there will be a significant difference, perhaps, on other foreign policy issues. Um, And I think in some ways it makes the U.S. relationship more important for the incoming Israeli government than it has been for Netanyahu, because Netanyahu is the one who forged the formal diplomatic openings with UAE and Bahrain and, to a lesser extent, Morocco and Sudan, and, you know, Israel is eager to to build on these, but because Netanyahu is the guy who's been in power for the last 12 years, most of the incoming folks do not have experience engaging with these governments. Before the diplomatic opening, these relationships were handled through the intelligence agencies. And so they're going to need the United States to help kind of broker those relationships, facilitate those relationships that's one reason why I think they're going to work to have good ties with Washington. The other reason, of course, is just good old contrast with their predecessor, Netanyahu and Donald Trump, each in their own way and working together, famously politicized the bilateral relationship, both in the U.S. and in Israel, used it as a partisan wedge issue against their political opponents and helped one another in doing that, thereby exacerbating the problem. Yet you're Lapid, who's Lapid, The king of this new coalition, even though he's not the prime minister, has said for a long, long time that this partisanization of the relationship is very dangerous and that as a leader of a new coalition, he would work to rebuild America's, Israel's ties to Democrats and talk across the American political spectrum. So, you know, you'll see, I think, an immediate change in tone. And I also think that there are substantive reasons why the two sides are going to want to work closely
3: together. Ben, what are your thoughts on that question?
1: Yeah, look, I I think as a general matter, U.S.-Israeli relations, how good they are is a simple function, a simple inverse function of how right-wing the Israeli government is. As a general matter, the Israeli right generates friction with the United States, the Israeli center and left does not. And so you've gone from a situation in which uh, you've had many, many years of right-wing Israeli rule, sometimes with some degree of centrist coalition, as in the last government often just a narrow right-wing Israeli coalition, and that generates a lot of friction, particularly with Democrats. So now you're having a situation where the Prime Minister is is a even further right person. Naftali Bennett is, you know, arguably further right than Bibi Netanyahu. But the broad swath of the coalition is not, and the coalition agreement is not about pursuing right-wing objectives. It's about pursuing a bunch of good government objectives. And the foreign minister is going to be somebody who, as Tamara says, is very committed to improving the U.S.-Israel relationship. So I do think it augurs well. The wild card here is Naftali Bennett. He has multiple faces as a politician. He has a sort of good, competent government streak face. He's also got a very hard right annexed territories face. And so which Naftali Bennett shows up is an important variable here that I don't think we'll know the answer to until we see.
3: Well, senior leaders of government need secure ways to communicate, candidly share their views, express their positions. So do criminals. Yes, criminals, contract killers, drug lords, kingpins. They too- Need a preferred way of communicating, ideally one that might not be easily detected by law enforcement or intelligence agencies. And they thought that they'd found it, you know, like in the criminal app store where, I mean, I know I download many of my first
2: apps. <laughs> Is that on the dark web? No, no, it's, a, it's at the
1: thelawfairstore.com. <laughs> you can buy your FBI-generated Criminal app for for secure communications.
3: (laughs) Joke. Yes, joke. Uh, This is an amazing story. So aforementioned, alleged 'er ne'er-do-wells, were using this high-priced, secure, encrypted phone and app called a It wasn't
2: even a phone. It was just a a device.
3: It's like a device, right? That... They were like using to like apparently swap photos of cocaine packed pineapples and like other evidence of their crimes. Little did they know uh, that this app had been set up by a coalition of law enforcement officials who were just collecting all of the evidence of all of the crimes uh, reading here from my colleagues, uh, Rachel Panett and Michael Burma, I'm Rachel filing out of Sydney. Law enforcement officials, some of whom Tuesday could barely contain their glee, announced that they had arrested more than 800 people and gained an unprecedented understanding into the functioning of modern criminal networks that would keep fueling investigations long past the coordinated international raids that took place in recent days. So Ben, my first question to you is, why have governments not tried this before and should they be doing more of it? Well,
1: the should question is complicated because you don't want governments as a general matter to be setting up private sector entities as kind of honey traps to... to. You don't? Isn't that what
2: governments do all well, the it time? it
1: does have the capacity to undermine confidence in in you know, industry that produces stuff. Well, let's leave the should question aside. This is a great operation. And what makes this operation work is that this thing kind of already existed. And the FBI and these other agencies, there was already this device thing that was being used and marketed for this purpose, and they kind of took it over.
3: So they didn't build it, they co-opted it, essentially.
1: At, at least as I read the story, um, it was kind of a co-optation and, and then in development, and then they kind of marketed it, and they marketed it within a certain community, that is to say the hardcore criminals who were planning major, major operations, it's a really, really smart operation. Should they be doing more of it? My answer to that is depending how tar- in how targeted a fashion they do it. So what you don't want the FBI to do is set up, you know, Signal FBI right, where they try to get everybody in the world to use, or going bright, um, <laughs> the, 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 the special, uh, the special FBI secure messaging app right, where they try to get everybody to use it, they hide their role. But if they have opportunities to get very targeted groups of people to use something that's going to, by their own choice, that's going to, you know, CC the Bureau on what they're doing, I really don't have a problem with that. I think it's smart.
3: What do you think, Tammy? So,
2: yes, looked at through that frame, the narrow question of this use case, I agree. It's a sting and it's a great sting. And look at the impact, it's incredibly valuable. And look, it took like six years. You know, it was a major investment, major international cooperation. It says lots of great things about the way in which law enforcement can cooperate across borders to combat international criminal organizations that are engaged in trafficking of people and drugs. And like, who wouldn't applaud this? Okay, I don't think we can avoid the should question. I think the more I think about this, the more concerned I become. And it goes back in a certain way to some of the earlier questions that we faced about the FBI trying to unlock the Apple iPhone, you know, and stuff like that. Like, okay, the FBI paid some Australian company to unlock encrypted communications. Now they, they got this uh, device development company to build the device and the app and then to sell it to criminal organizations with the promise that it was encrypted when in fact it was all being copied to law enforcement. So there already is this entanglement between law enforcement and private companies in this space of encryption. So that immediately raises the question of like a corruption of the sector or people losing trust in the sector. OK, but or more particularly, does the public in general, do consumers have any right to purchase privacy or. Does the FBI have freedom to suborn, you know, privacy providing private sector entities whenever they can? That that to me is a really important question. I think, for example, about somebody who makes these devices. Yes, probably their biggest market are criminal enterprises, but they would also have a market among journalists who want to give devices to confidential sources. They might have a market among activists, you know, democracy activists who are trying to escape intrusive government surveillance of of activity that's basically protected international human rights activity. You know, so once we open, once we say this is laudable and government should, you know, look for opportunities to do this, you can't necessarily avoid the collateral damage to these other use cases.
1: So I just want to ask, how is your answer different from mine? My answer is, you wouldn't want government to do this on a big scale, because... but they just
2: did it on a big no, no. Scale. They <laughs> did it
1: on a pretty small scale. They did it on a with a very specific device that was marketed to criminal organizations. So my answer to the should question is no, they shouldn't do this in general. But when you have the opportunity to do it in a very highly targeted fashion that's looking at criminal activity only. uh, That's very attractive. What's your answer to the should question?
2: Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is we don't know that those conditions you just described are actually true in this case. We do not know. We know about the users who've been taken down by law enforcement with criminal charges We don't know if this company sold devices or if they were sold secondarily by criminals to activists or journalists or others using the devices for non-criminal purposes. All of the devices sent their messages to law enforcement. We don't even know all the countries whose governments had access to these messages and whether those are countries that are fully protective of legitimate activity. So but but I what's, think your answer,
1: lo- what's your answer to the should question, though? You said we can't I'm, avoid it.
2: I'm saying if we think it is valuable enough as a tool, we need to put some constraints on law enforcement's ability to do this to avoid those collateral costs because they are very high.
1: What's your answer to the should question, Shane? I mean,
3: hmm. I guess as a policy matter, it doesn't surprise me that the government would try to use technology to, I, mean, I hesitate to use the word entrap because I know that that has legal significance to it. But like, look, as an intelligence operation, if this were an intelligence operation, I guess it would make me less uncomfortable, right? If it was the CIA tricking oh, sure. oligarchs into using a phone system that was just giving away all of their secrets to to Langley. I share Tammy's concern about what happens if the government, let's say the FBI decides it should start surreptitiously marketing um, a secure communications platform to see if it could take off with journalists, not necessarily to target the journalists because we know they would never do that, (laughs) Um, but to try and go after our sources. So, you know, suddenly like two years from now, like I think that like, you know, going bright is like the shit. And I recommend all of my sources start using it. And they don't realize that they're having a conversation with somebody in the Hoover building. Right. What I mean, as a policy matter, I don't see why the government would have any objection to doing that versus trying to track down other people who it believes are guilty of crimes, you know, of which leaking classified information would be a crime. It's only just like a the judgment call that separates them from doing that. And as we've seen, those judgments are fungible as you know, President Biden has now come out and said, oh, we're not going to subpoena reporters phone records anymore. Like, OK, well, the next president might disagree with you the way the previous ones did. So, yeah, it makes me it just makes me nervous. And it, but at the same time, I think it's kind of crazy to think that law enforcement is not going to avail itself of this opportunity, which was kind of the nature of my question to you, Ben. Which, you know, I said it facetiously, but it's a fair question, right? It's like, why haven't they done this before and shouldn't we expect they're going to do more of it? Of course, now, if you are like a cocaine kingpin, you might not be so quick to use some great new device that people have told you is super secure. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe there'll be a chilling effect on that and and, and therefore the intelligence hall will be less
0: relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
1: I mean, I I think the, the answer is probably doesn't lie in the device space. But in the app space, so you know this is a uh, long-running enough thing that it actually appears to involve a discrete device, mm-hmm. right? But if I were the FBI or NSA in the in the in the intelligence space, you know the people's investment in their individual devices is pretty high, and you know if you can just get people to use Signal NSA or Signal FBI, that's a much lower cost operation, right? In just in terms of development. And so I do think this is going to create uh, incentive to move toward the known brands. Whereas it used to be that if you said, hey, I've got this super secret device uh, that no one else has heard of, but it's really secure. That sounds attractive. Right now, signal running on an Apple iPhone seems pretty attractive from a security point of view, at least in my opinion.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But you, but I mean, it's also like that creates an incentive too, doesn't it? For more governments and technology companies to develop surveillance tools that can crack those platforms. Yeah. Tammy.
2: So here's my question for you guys. And, you know, maybe, Ben, you'll say this is just a different category and it's not relevant. But, you know, if the FBI wants to use the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, they have to go to court and get a warrant. If the NSA, you know, wants to collect intercepts that involve Americans, there are legal constraints on that what are the legal constraints on this like we don't even know if american citizens were caught up in this collection and we don't know under what authority or under what terms
1: so i'm not sure i know the answer to this question cuz i think it matters at a deep level of precision exactly what they did but here is here are a few possibilities if you use an app or a, a device no you knowingly download it, right? Mm-hmm. You knowingly buy it, and it happens to be forwarding your correspondence to somebody who is giving it to the FBI or to the FBI itself. That is not an interception. That is you delivering information to about yourself to either assuming
2: it's in the terms of service, but presumably in this case it was not.
1: Well but right? I don't know. I don't think that's a I don't think the terms of service matter from a legal point of view. The legal question is is the FBI intercepting wire or audio communication, in which case it needs a warrant, or is somebody giving it stuff, either you or a third party. Oh, yeah. um, and so I think that's probably, in one way or another, the answer. But this would have had to be really carefully lawyered, and I suspect that it will be it will be litigated actively uh, to the extent that this stuff is prosecuted in U.S. courts. Somebody's going to say, "Wait a minute, were you surreptitiously intercepting my email?" And the government will say, no, we weren't intercepting our email. You were CCing us on everything you did. You hit reply all. Yeah, exactly. And I, th- my guess is that's going to be the terms of the discussion, but it is not obvious from the news story. Uh, we'll have to watch it in litigation.
3: Well, I've been waiting very patiently as we discuss all this like shit about Israel and it's Encryption. I know none
2: of that anymore.
3: matters. Jane, talk, talk God, oh God, we can finally talk about it. We can finally talk about it, you guys. Ooh. Rarely, <laughs> rarely, rarely, rarely have I been so pissed to get scooped by my good friend Julian Barnes at the New York Times.
2: But it was, it was worth it. I'm, just not, I'm not kidding.
3: Like I'm sitting there at dinner trying to watch Hacks. And then the alert comes across and it's like, God damn it. (laughs) And Joe's like, what? Like I show him, he's like, God damn it. (laughs) A credit to the New York Times for reporting this first, but I'm still going to read from the Washington Post's coverage by my colleagues, Missy Ryan and Alex Horton. A soon-to-be-released government report on unexplained aerial phenomena finds no proof of extraterrestrial activity but cannot provide a definitive explanation for scores of incidents in which strange objects have been spotted in the sky, officials said. The findings of the report, which should be provided to Congress by the DNI as soon as this month, will offer no firm conclusions about what the objects repeatedly detected by military pilots and others in recent years might be. The report's conclusions were first reported by the New York Times and does not rule out extraterrestrial activity and is likely to further stoke what has become a highly unusual, to say the least, national discussion about the policy that unknown life forms are visiting the Earth." All right. So let's put aside the question of aliens. The report does not provide any evidence of that. And yes, it does not say that they're not aliens. I want to focus on the more immediate and I think alarming national security issue here, which is that our government, our military, our intelligence community, apparently former presidents are saying There are objects flying around in our airspace next to our naval vessels and our aircraft, and we don't know what they are and how they're doing what they do. This is a big fucking problem.
1: Notice, first of all, that Shane is changing the subject. (laughs) The military can't rule out aliens, and uh, and Shane doesn't want to talk about it. You know, uh, we can
3: talk about it. I just figured I wasn't sure either of you were really prepared to have a serious. No, no,
1: conversation I, I'm just that.
2: saying. Well, look, no, ben is not prepared to have a serious when, conversation. when the aliens
1: actually show up.
3: Shane, agree, yeah.
1: Shane is fu- is actually ducking the subject.
3: No, I think there's no evidence, obviously, that's being provided, but there is ample evidence being provided of what strikes me as I'm not going to say an intelligence failure, but there's a gigantic freaking intelligence gap here. If there is shit flying around and we're like, I don't know what it is. Tammy.
2: Okay. So, first of all, like I hear you on that, Shane. And it is impressive given the technical capabilities of the United States government it is impressive that U.S. personnel can observe things that the government with all of its resources cannot identify. So, yes, on the one hand, that should worry us. And there are all these implications about maybe these are some unknown Chinese or Russian technology, you know. But I, you know, but I also think like the world is wide. Science only moves at the pace that we can empirically, you know, determine things. And sometimes that takes a really long time. And I mean, you know, go back to Hamlet, right? There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Like
3: That is not how Raytheon sells the Aegis radar system.
2: (laughs) Okay, but that's my point. Like, we can't assume the omnipotence of our government with all of its technological capabilities we would be foolish to do so raytheon may have a reason to you know make that argument but that doesn't necessarily mean we should like buy buy the the hype and these could be meteorological phenomena these could be artifacts of our own sensors like and the way they interact with the world or with each other or with the brains of pilots There is a lot that could explain this other than like some freaky physical object.
3: Right. And the report may say that, but we should also emphasize and we haven't seen the report. And I don't think the Times saw it. They got briefed on it. And I think we were briefed on it, obviously, as we made clear. But one thing we should note is that the report apparently will say that They're not ours, basically, right? Like, this is not U.S. craft that we're looking at. Now, to your very good point about is there a technical failure in our sensors or some other phenomenon, we don't know what the report says. I will say, like, if this is a technical failure, like, wow, there's some serious technical failures because these reports are being reported consistently and multiple times. Okay,
1: I want to propose a policy toward these unexplainable flying objects. because here's what we know they're not ours they're not civilian aircraft
2: they seem to violate the rules they seem of physics. to
1: violate the laws of physics and they're in our airspace so i have a three word policy shoot them
3: down oh, <laughs> this is such a good question because this is so good
1: they are aliens yeah. In which case, we don't want to fuck with that. We want to keep them away from- Hasn't US...
2: anyone seen Independence Day? Yeah. Just shoot them down.
1: <laughs> right. They would be pacifist aliens. But, you know, the aliens in, in Independence Day, we waved like nice flags and welcomed them and they still blew up the Capitol. If- but they
3: started by doing that. These guys are just like observing if they're-
1: Okay, okay no, guys. no. We, we are totally not making peace with the aliens but secondly if they are russian or chinese yes. they shouldn't be in our fucking airspace we should exactly. shoot them down
3: exactly so
1: I'm, I'm saying like our policy should be shoot first and then figure out what language
3: they speak later. <laughs> wait,
2: wait, wait, wait guys what if it's iron man
3: no we said it wasn't ours it could be a contractor
2: no like what if it's us but like some part of us that the people writing this report
1: don't know about no iron man gets shot down too (laughs) he's really annoying i'm going to
3: try and i'm going to try and harness this discussion back to something remotely serious (laughs) because this is is very serious this is very serious and i think you i think we mock what we don't understand yeah but This does raise a really interesting question about, which I haven't seen anyone address, about rules of engagement. Now, obviously, the Navy, which is where so many of these pilots are from that have seen these, have rules of engagement. And I think one of them would be like, you know, you don't start shooting at something that doesn't pose an obvious threat to you. But it does raise some interesting questions. And I wonder if anyone in the government's thought about this. Of Okay, now that we have this protocol for cataloging and capturing all of the data, On these things, which we've talked about before and they're mentioned on the podcast. Should there be some effort to try and start signaling to these things, to try and communicate, to try and divine their intentions? I mean, that's a really like interesting question and potential can of worms, right? Like if we take that these are objects, right? And I haven't seen anyone saying, like, we don't even know if they're objects. Like, affirmatively, the report is saying these are objects, which suggests that it's not a sensor failure per se, or maybe there are in some cases. And some of them, we should say, too, maybe explain more as, like, you know, drones or or weather balloons, although they don't clearly fit that pattern across the board, the report says. So there's some stuff here. We don't know what it is. Like, you know, don't we try and, like, hail Or signal to foreign adversary aircraft when they're in our airspace? Like there is a protocol for communicating, even non verbally, there is a protocol for doing that, you know, waving your wings, whatever, at adversary craft. Are we thinking about doing that with these craft, which could be hypersonic Chinese or uh, Russian systems?
2: So, yeah, they could be, but if they were, you wouldn't expect them to acknowledge.
3: Why? Why not?
2: Like, if I'm a U.S. pilot and I waggle the wings of my aircraft at a UFO, if it's Chinese or Russian, it's not going to want to acknowledge that it's Chinese or Russian and therefore knows that waggling means something, right? And if it's an alien UFO, then it doesn't know what waggling wings means. Like, as a practical matter, I don't think that's going to get us very far. But in addition to that, like that the whole signaling should we try to communicate with them thing, I think immediately gets into like things well beyond government policy that go to like ethics and like, now I'm getting images of Jeff Goldblum and his dad. like.
3: I just think that there are all kinds of policy questions that are answerable on on this subject. Right. I mean, if the military is encountering these things, you know, to the tune of like dozens of times, I mean, is the policy that we just strictly observe them? And by the way, if we're strictly observing them, then maybe we should be deploying even more sophisticated sensors on some of these naval carriers to try and take more readings on them. Because again, if these are adversary craft that can perform feats of, you know, Aviation beyond our comprehension of physics, we're kind of fucked if that's the Russians or the Chinese.
1: Yeah, so I I want to suggest that, first of all, the the details of the report here matter, right? I think you're gonna feel differently about this if they are all naval incidents over water, which would really suggest a earthbound adversary right
2: would it or a meteorological phenomenon because water and signal refraction no near. but
1: i mean i mean if you're if you're saying this th- these look like they're being flown and they're all over water you say okay that's the russian and the, or the chinese approaching us territory but not wanting to cross into it presumably the aliens have less of a sense of the terrestrial politics and our borders don't, you know, they've come six gazillion miles for uh, our terrestrial borders aren't as important to them. On the other hand, if some of these incidents, uh, and then you get into the question of, of how many of these incidents are Navy versus air force and why is it the Navy that's picking them up, picking them all up? I mean, I think there's actually a lot to be gleaned from the specifics of what is reported to have happened many times and after the report comes out i think we should we we should kind of sit down with it and say okay what is the pattern of unexplained incidents is it is it something that's moving overseas like something we don't know to exist is it a whole range of disparate activities is it over land also you know, and then how many fingers do they have? <laughs> yeah. OK, so I'm I'm
2: with Ben on the um, we need a lot more information piece. I will note, though, that the hypotheses he just laid out, which, you know, he uh, are just initial, but like 70 percent of the Earth is water. So. The chance, like the random chance would be that you're going to see something over water more likely than over land. Most of
1: you use water too.
2: Okay, come on, <laughs> man. So like what I would not do is make any assumptions based on where these things are about whether they are Russian and Chinese, adversarial, terrestrial, or alien. I, that I don't think we have any basis for at all. But I do think you can, you should Gather a lot more observational data. So, again, like going back to what I said at the beginning, science people, science. We don't know enough. So, yes, the first thing I would want our pilots and others to do is capture a lot more data, observe, record, et cetera. And then you want, you know, yes, you want to do a lot of analysis looking for patterns but you can't just go making assumptions about what aliens are going to recognize or adversarial folks are going to. I
1: want them to capture the aliens and I want them to bring them for an interview on rational security (laughs) because we, we need a fourth on rational security because since Susan went into the government. And so I am hereby inviting all captured aliens to come talk to us on rational security okay i'm just like okay whatever like what if they're heptapods and they think in
2: circles
3: (laughs) oh man i would love to learn let's be honest too susan totally knows what's going on now she's she's seen all of it it was the the
1: first briefing she got
2: and she's not telling you shane
3: yeah she already speaks heptapod at this point All right, let us move on to Object Lessons. Um, I will go first. I'm going to share uh, a new series. of H, uh, It was actually on FX um, that I just finished. It came out last year, but I just caught up with this. A Wilderness of Error. Have you guys heard about this? No. Hey. So <clears throat> this is kind of interesting. So uh, Mark Smerling, who's the producer, director behind films like Capturing the Friedmans and the Jinx, Uh, which was great, the HBO documentary on uh, Robert Durst, the suspected murderer, has got this new series, A Wilderness of Error, which is based on a book of the same name by Errol Morris, who, of course, is a very famous documentary filmmaker. A Wilderness of Error is Errol Morris's reinvestigation and exploration of the murder by Jeffrey MacDonald, who was the army doctor convicted of murdering his wife and two small children uh, in North Carolina back, I think, 1969 or 1970, um, became this incredibly famous book called Fatal Vision by Joe McGinnis. Uh, it spawned a miniseries, also huge. Um, Joe McGinnis's book spawned a kind of seminal uh, text about ethics and journalism called The Journalist and the Murderer, uh, which if you've been to J school, you probably read that because Joe McGuinness sort of famously um, committed some pretty, I think, pretty amazing journalistic violations, including um, becoming a member of Jeffrey McDonald's defense team as he was writing a book about Jeffrey McDonald. Not kosher, not kosher at all. It was. But um, but it's so interesting. So like so. Errol Morris has just been obsessed with this case and wondering whether or not Jeffrey McDonald uh, is innocent. So he apparently went back, wrote a book about it, and uh, Smerling has done this documentary. Very interesting. I'm not going to say anything about it, but for listeners of the podcast, you know, who are interested in criminal investigation, criminal procedure, it raised this whole question that I didn't understand because he was actually tried twice. He was tried uh, in a court-martial uh, and found not guilty and then tried in a criminal federal court and found guilty. So I don't, I, I don't know that I guess, I guess double jeopardy doesn't apply when it's first in a military court. Uh, but anyway, super interesting to people who are interested and in, not just in you know, kind of like these salacious and sensational crime stories, but it gets a lot into evidence, evidence collection, chain of custody, witness statements, memory, um, the kind of things that are definitely of interest to, uh, Rat and Lawfare listeners. Plus, it's just really well done. I mean, it's just he's a great documentary uh, film storyteller. And Errol Morris is just quirky and weird. Yeah, fascinating guy. Yeah, it's so fun to like watch the camera turn back on him. It's just, yeah, it's neat. Anyway, so check it out. Wilderness of Error. Who wants to go next? Go for it, Tammy.
2: Okay, so my object lesson is not NatSec related, but it is Pride Month related because it's pride month, y'all.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah. And uh, so I want to spotlight a book that came out in April that I think fills a really important gap in literature and I think can also play a really important role for kids and hopefully teachers and parents and other adults all across America. It is a uh, YA novel, a young adult novel called Too Bright to See by Kyle Lukoff. Uh, I'll just read the description quickly from the publisher. It's the summer before middle school. An 11-year-old Bugs' best friend, Moira, has decided that the two of them need to use the next few months to prepare. For Moira, this means figuring out the right clothes to wear, learning how to put on makeup, and deciding which boys are cuter in their yearbook photos than in real life. But none of this is all that appealing to Bug, who doesn't particularly want to spend more time trying to understand how to be a girl. Besides, there's something more important to worry about. A ghost is haunting Bug's eerie old house in rural Vermont, and maybe haunting Bug in particular. As Bug begins to untangle the mystery of who this ghost is and what they are trying to say, an altogether different truth comes to light.
0: Bug is
2: transgender. So this is a book by a transgender author about a trans kid. And I hope that it will help questioning kids in libraries across America come to know and recognize themselves. And I hope that it will help adults across America get some insight into how it feels to be a kid who is not comfortable in their own body. So uh, Urge It for All of You, Too Bright to See by Kyle luca
3: It's a great title, too. And I love that it's embedded in a ghost story.
2: Yeah, and it got an amazing review in The New York Times.
3: Awesome. Uh, ben. Speaking of Susan Hennessy. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of our Heptapod yeah. ambassador. Yeah, exactly.
0: So heptapod ambassador, that's
1: right. Many rational security listeners may have noticed that the right wing Wingnut attack machine has gone to town on Susan. She has been the subject of
2: pshaw, I say, pshaw a, to all of you.
1: Has been the subject of a denunciation editorial in the Wall Street Journal, as well as a a, a very kind piece by Kimberly Strassel in the Wall Street Journal. That's being sarcastic. Well, just to make sure. <laughs> uh, various senators have denounced her on Twitter. Uh, And a bunch of right-wing publications have run pieces about how she should not be in the Justice Department. I have, around the time that you uh, listen to this, or shortly uh, thereafter, maybe tomorrow, uh, I have made a point of saying nothing about any of this. Uh, The other day, however, three members of the House Judiciary Committee wrote a letter to Merrick Garland demanding information about Susan. And out of concern that the uh, Justice Department's response may not say everything I would want them to say on the subject, Uh, I have written my own response to uh, Jim Jordan's uh, letter. Uh, It can be found on Lawfare probably by the time this episode comes out, if not shortly
3: thereafter. Does this mean that, like Jim Jordan is going to go back and listen to all of our podcasts?
1: <laughs> yeah, right? Because
3: I... if you want to know about Susan, like hello, actually no, put the I headphones don't think, in, I don't maybe. think you
1: will because if you look at the footnotes to Jim Jordan's letter, none of them is a footnote to actual Susan Hennessy work product. They are all footnotes to right wing newspapers and magazines quoting or generally out-of-context Susan Hennessy work product. So I think the rational security feed is safe from the prying eyes of Jim Jordan. That would require doing a level of homework that he's just not going to do.
3: I thought we were going to get like at least three new listeners out of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: Jim Jordan, flower. however, if you are listening to this, shame on you, dude.
3: Hmm. <laughs> I'm not using you in my band name, sir. Just FYI. Yeah. Not going to happen. But that brings us to the end of this podcast. It's like our fourth podcast without Susan.
2: I know. It's so sad.
3: It's very sad. Well, but she's off fighting the aliens. So, you know, it's okay. It's all good.
2: <laughs> I thought she was <laughs> communicating with the
3: aliens. I mean, she's probably fine. Susan would totally be like, shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I think from maybe we should make this a recurring joke. Susan's uh, diplom- diplomatic uh, overtures to the aliens. I'm down with it. All right, let's bring Absolutely. it into every episode. Absolutely, now. we'll just make up make up stories about it. Great.
3: Let's get it into the right wing, um, like cuckoo pants, <laughs> ecosphere. Yeah, like Susan has been joking about it long enough. Speak, octopod. <laughs> <Heptapod. laughs>
2: Where is the weekly world news when
1: you need it?
3: <laughs> oh my god. Oh my maybe god. Maybe we should She's just a... put in the credits every week. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not get carried away. <laughs> Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You could say, well, do we already say what we're selling this week? We did earlier. Wait, Yeah, we we're selling.
1: selling um, uh, no, no, we're selling <laughs> FBI created
3: devices
1: uh, to listen yes. uh, so that you can CC all your correspondence Anom. to the bureau.
3: Anonymously. <laughs> That's what we're going to call it, anonymous. <laughs> Oh my God. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL security. I think I still remember. Uh, We are still on Facebook. I remember that whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review and share it with your friends. Share it with your alien friends. Share the love, baby. That's right. With your enemies. Share it with your enemies, especially. we love that. I mean, the more the merrier. Get in here with us. Uh, Our audio engineer this week was Ian Enright, ably produced by Hamza Shitu. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope we didn't totally scar you for life, Hamza, but (laughs) you'll be be all right. Uh, This show's producer, editor, as always, is Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Naftali Bennett and his new band, 61 Little Green Men. Nice. Nice. Good. Not yeah. bad, right? That actually is not a bad band name. Not at all. one's a lot, but like, sure.
2: It's think... like a dance, electronic dance band.
3: Yeah, for sure.
1: Exactly. Okay. And it's like done I think, over Zoom. I think it plays Russian and Eastern Ukrainian music, actually.
3: <laughs> but it's only over Zoom because you can't get that many people in a room unless they're vaccinated. <laughs> But Sophia Yam will come, but if you pay her enough, it's just yeah. yeah, and first class tickets and like you know, sure. no freesia in the green room. That's very clear in her. <laughs> no writer,
2: green M and M's.
3: Exactly. On behalf of my good friends Ben Woodis and Tamara Coffin Woodis, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk at you next week. Goodbye.